I think it's important to note at the top of this that we're both wearing uh, tank tops right now. Ludicrous. Well, mine's ludicrous. Yours is pretty sweet. Uh, it's also ludicrous. Yeah, they're both ludicrous. I think we're they're both, both pretty ludicrous. I think I think they're both like uh, I think we're both dressing like teenagers right now. And I think we're both pulling it off. I wore this to school today and it, it felt like when I used to wear something daring to like middle school because um, I, I like registered everybody's reaction when they looked at it. I was like, oh, I didn't realize I was like making a statement. <laughs> People were, uh, I, I think I was humorous in their eyes. That's good. <laughs> well, maybe. I always wonder how I, how I came off to people because you know when you're in high school or when you're even just younger you have such specific ideas like when you wear a certain thing that you know like you were saying that you know or people are gonna like pay attention to or it's gonna draw their eye yeah you do it with like a very uh almost like arrogant nah, I, don't, yeah, I don't want to well, say arrogant but you're like you're making a statement right and it's so stupid because you're just putting a shirt like it's not like you I made the shirt I, I think like yeah <laughs> everyone's just so self-conscious in uh high school and middle school that uh, anybody who does something that openly could invite ridicule people are like what are you doing who are you see now if i magically was transported back to high school i think i would do a couple things differently i i, I don't know would you what, what would you do i, I mean, didn't even in, think about this in terms of wearing stupid t-shirts i don't know if i would do so much differently although there there was one instance i got uh i wore so i went to an all-boys catholic high school uh-huh. uh uh and I wore uh, pink Converse. My girlfriend at the time gave me <laughs> gave me pink Converse as a gift. Amazing. So I so I wore them uh, one day to school. And I mean, I knew that it was like a weird thing to do, and people would look at me. But I really wasn't prepared for like meathead jock like actually like throwing things at me and calling me a faggot. Wow! Like it got really intense. Yeah. Um. So I I think that is the 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 one time where it was um uh hard for me no, to I th- like deal with it but i think any anytime i wore something like a little bit androgynous or or something that would yeah it wasn't even like tr- inviting like ridicule it was just like people did not like it but i wonder cuz even in like the last decade since we have not been in high school anymore mm-hmm. like teenagers or or kids are becoming like more comfortable with who they are and i wonder if it's like really just becoming uh, a lot more common for people to like not be made fun of for wearing weird or androgynous things or like even just like something that like might be gay. Maybe you know what I mean? Kids are being made fun of for not wearing androgynous things or not being open-minded. This is what our PC uh, fascist um, society has brought us to that we are now uh, not allowed (laughs) <laughs> to not wear anything gay. <laughs> I mean, you remember the term metrosexual? It's no one ever, no one even says that anymore. It's just assumed. Yeah, well, cool. I don't know what I would do differently, but I mean, if I went back to high school, but I do think the idea of doing something really to make a statement and then having everyone hate you for it, 
plays in very much to uh, Nick Cage's performance in the film that we're discussing today, Peggy Sue Got Married. Um, and so I, I have some like fun, fun things to pull out of the unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli. Do you want to start with that? Because well, I don't know, because I almost want to hear, I want to hear your take on the film first. Okay. Uh, there's a lot. I actually, I took extensive notes, maybe the most of any film, yeah. of, of any film we've watched so far. Well, oh, first off, do, do you think, because I know I've been kind of building it up and saying like, okay, we're, go, we're getting into the golden, you know, that the, the, this is the entrance into the golden era of Nicolas Cage. And do you think this film lived up to that? Yes, I do. And I'll say because this was the first time that he had moments in his other films before this where he kind of seemed... Uh, I don't want to say possessed, right. but like there was a sense of he was inhabit he was not himself and was like truly inhabiting a separate character entirely. Yes. But this was the first film where the character was not like him at all. Like True. He, did, he didn't put any of himself into the character. I don't yes. think in yeah, terms of it, the character was balanced. Yes. In for what it was the whole time he, yeah. And, and it did, it did feel like a separate entity, which I, is key, I think, yes. to his style of acting and uh -huh. why we like him so much. And to see it happen, really, it just kind of, this is kind of the flip side to his like wild at heart Elvis. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Elvis character where yes. he is just, I mean, I feel like it is kind of the other side of the coin. A better way to say it is it's more like the Buddy Holly to his Elvis and Wild at Heart. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's does perfect. That, does, does that yeah. make sense? I, yeah. Now, since we've been following Francis Ford Coppola for this chunk of his movie career, like, wh what do you, how do you see this movie in kind of the scope of his oeuvre? Uh, I'm sorry, his what? <laughs> it's French. Okay, cool. I don't, I don't speak French, so you'll have to translate for me. Um, I, I don't see it at all, and that's why it's weird. I, there mm. is no internal logic to Coppola's career post-Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Every single film is just completely out of left field. True. One, one from the heart, The Outsiders, Rumblefish. Those two, I think, are the only two that can sit well yeah. next to each other. The Cotton Club. Yeah, and then this. Then this. No, Captain EO. Captain EO. Shit, that happened before this. It was between this and um, Cotton Club, yeah. Fuck. Which was him and... Him produced by George Lucas. George Lucas and, and starring, I mean, Michael, starring Jackson. Michael Jackson. And Angelica Houston's the like uh, evil uh, like alien uh, um, queen. I've never seen it. Oh, it's, dude, dude, you know, okay, so it's weird. Sorry, it's not at Disneyland anymore. Right, sorry to completely digress no, from the situation, but but so somebody was telling me recently, my good friend Vivian, who's yeah. a, a hilarious woman, uh, was telling me that we were discussing Halloween, and she was like, I think I'm going to go as Captain EO again this year, because she did it a couple <laughs> years ago. And she's like, but this time I'm going to have... Um, like uh, a, a system set up so that I have lights to like shoot, like to shoot down my arm when I like cool. open my hands like this. Cause that's part that's of like, yeah, that's like what Michael Jackson does in it. And, and we were with, and someone else in the dressing room that we were with was like, what's captain EO. And then Vivian and I like freaked out and we realized because we grew up in Southern California right. that we, that we just captain EO was a part of our childhood. Sure. 
Well, they played at Disneyland for like 20 like, years or something. No, right? no, it was less, but it was 10 or 12. Yeah. And I saw it multiple times in that time. I think it was from like the mid 80s to like the late 90s or something. Uh-huh. And it was like really, I mean, that was one of the uh, always, every time I went when I was a kid, that was one of the like, go to attractions. Neo. I had to go see Captain EO. I see. I remember <clears throat> watching VHS tapes for things that I wanted. And they, I think before Star Wars and certain ones that I had, there was an advertisement for Captain EO that made it look amazing. Like, you know, stuff flying out of the screen at the audience. Oh yeah. It wasn't, they had these crazy, they had like stars on this, on the walls and the ceiling of the theater. So that like when the ship takes off, you like go into hyperspace and like they all light up. It's, and it was, I just remember as a kid just being like, wow, like I loved it. I almost, I almost don't want to see it again because I don't think that, first of all, I don't, I'm definitely not remembering it accurately. Right. But the and version that's in your head is like definitely uh, way more magical than probably the version that I would see as a, as an adult. Yeah. Unless you were on the right drugs. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I also kind of like that, um, you know, despite like George Lucas and just re-releasing everything and trying to make it better every time. <laughs> and failing and people just digging up like any scrap of Michael Jackson to like exploit now that he's been gone that they've kept Captain EO in the vaults. Yeah. It's never had like an official release ever. And I think that that's kind of cool that like these two superstars just, there's like a magical collaboration between them that, who, I mean, who knows when it'll come out in like a real capacity. They, they replayed it a couple years ago at Disneyland after he died. Wow. But it was, from what, I, I didn't see it, but from what I hear, it was, like, slightly different and not quite as good. Oh. But anyway. It's not, like, a feature, though, right? It's no, like it's, seven like, seven minutes or something. Long. Yeah, I don't know how long it is, but it's short. It's yeah. definitely, like, less than 20 minutes long. Yeah. Well, I okay. feel like I missed out. But from, well, from, especially Cotton Club to Captain EO to Peggy Sue Got Married, is it is really, like... I mean, remember, though, that he was broke. So there's a sense of him, like, just taking money, maybe just from whoever wanted to offer it to him. And what did he do after? Well, it doesn't matter. But I'm sure it makes equally, like, as little sense as everything he did in this time. All I know is there were several movies after this, then Jack, then uh, Twixt. Have you seen Twixt? No. Okay, well, we're not going to talk about it again because we did the last time we talked about Coppola. But uh, all I'm going to say is it might be it might be the performance of Fat Kilmer's life. <laughs> okay, so... Way to make me want to watch it. It's, it's going to be a shock to your system if, if and when you finally do. Um, all right, so wherever the Friends of Ford Coppola is at in here, let, I, I'm going to open up the uh this biography now and read a couple so nicholas cage went into this film very much wanting to remember he had just done the boy in blue and felt like it was such a generic role that he basically just wanted to blow that up and he was gonna do it in any movie and coppola it, and this is kind of perverse because Coppola really wanted him for this role. I think having seen the work that he'd been doing, he, uh, and I, after maybe like giving him a, a shitty job in uh, the cotton club to like waste all his time when he could have been out chasing roles, Coppola convinced him to be in this movie. And Nicolas Cage was like, so he says, 
I did not want to do Peggy Sue got married. I turned it down three times. Francis said, I really need you to be in this movie. I read the script, which was a perfectly romantic film, but the character he wanted me to play was boring. He was the babe to Kathleen Turner's starring role. Just like women don't want to play the babe in movies, I didn't want to be Kathleen Turner's babe. I just wanted to play a character. So I thought, how can I make this guy really far out? I asked Francis about it on the phone, and he said, absolutely. I said, I want to go really far out. He asked, how far do you want to go? And he told him, and Nick Cage told him that he wanted to talk like Pokey, the horse from Gumby. And he, Francis Ford Coppola agreed to it. So it was Nick Cage's idea. Cause that was my question is like, yes. was it something they agreed on together as for the character or was it something that like Nick had to bring to, to Coppola? It, it was completely his idea, but Francis Ford Coppola completely supported him until he actually started doing no it. oh throughout. really so because oh, i would imagine that that would be like really really grating as a director no well that's what's amazing is he he was on board and not even like yeah this is really working but it seems like he was just like i trust you i'm gonna treat you like an artist and because everyone else hated it kathleen turner was pissed she was so like here's a here's a couple more uh, quotes uh, Nick Cage later confessed that he had wanted to blah, 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 blah. He had, he wanted to try a more surreal style of acting and picked Charlie Bodellis's experiment. I was an arrogant young man who knew what great, that great artists were always put down for taking chances. So I thought I have to do something where they're going to put me down or I'm not doing anything of quality. I saw Francis being very adventuresome, getting surreal. I thought, why can't actors do that? I had license to do whatever I want because in dreams, you can get to as abstract as you want. Um, and he says, Kathleen Turner did not like me very much and you can't blame her. She was supposed to be with someone written as a suave and romantic young leading man. I turned the character into a cross between a nutty professor and Jerry Lewis. It really freaked her out. It was another example of a character who, who had to get out because he was haunting me. I had to make it real. I was basically working without regard for anyone in the movie, just doing whatever I wanted and hijacking the movie <clears throat> for better or worse. I would probably have got fired from some movies in similar circumstances, but Francis stuck with me. I have no doubt that if anybody else had been directing this movie, I would have been fired. Kathleen basically said horrible, terrible. She gave me the full ice treatment. I thought it would be entertaining to everyone. Then I began to see that it wasn't. So he, he, he doesn't, he's complete disregard for everyone, including Francis Ford Coppola, who's giving him this huge, this huge opportunity. And he understands that that, I don't, it, it's just like such a amazing confluence of circumstances that he was allowed to do that. I mean, this is the extension of him and Sean Penn doing racing with the moon and then being like, no, we're artists. We're not going to advertise this movie at all. Cause we don't care at this point if anyone sees it, we just, we did it because we're artists. Now he's saying I'm an artist and great artists are people, people hate. So, <laughs> so, so you think, do, do you think he purposely made this difficult choice so that people would hate him because he thought that was the only way to be an artist? Well, yeah, he says that he, he was reading a lot about Edward Munch who, who painted like the scream and, oh, right. uh, and stuff like that. And that people hated Munch when he was alive. So as a 22 year old arrogant young man, he thought that to, if you're making art that people hate it, then it's you're, you're 
becoming a better artist because you're challenging people and making them feel something. So do you think that in some ways that Cage feels like he failed because he became a super successful actor that was like a box office draw? I don't know. He says that this is one of his favorite performances that he did, but I don't know if he thinks... I don't know if it's because, oh, I really hit it out of the park because clearly he sees what everyone else sees, but... Or if it's just like, I can't believe they let me do that and they let me do it and it created a big buzz because this movie, like no one talks about this movie really anymore, but it was... It was nominated it, for a multiple Academy yeah, Awards. She a, got, Kathleen Turner got a, uh, a Best Actress nomination for it. Yeah, and and it was successful. It Like it made more than its money back and but across the board, everyone hated his performance. That's so strange because I, if he, if his character, if he had played his character or if anybody Mm -hmm. had played that character as just a straight up, like, you know, like high school hunk or like a, you know, or just like a really like good looking suave guy, the movie, like that's like so much of the movie's charm is that she loves this guy who clearly isn't cool and is like slightly tortured by like trying to be like the next Fabian, mm-hmm. you know? And that's like supremely, un- like I feel like even at the time, that was a supremely uncool thing to want to do. Yes. To try to be like Fabian. Yeah. And so that is where a lot of the, like that's how I connect to his character. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And I kept try- watching it, trying to imagine him or anyone playing it straight. And and I totally see it. I mean, I think part of what's weird, I think this, it goes to like us talking about like, okay, so he routinely turns in performances that are interesting, but like, is it the right performance for the film? And I kept like kind of vacillating between that, going back and forth because everything else about this film is so perfectly calibrated, I think. And everyone is playing the roles very much as written and playing them very well. And it's, but it's not boring because the story is so tightly constructed. And because I think Coppola does such a good job of pacing it and like keeping you interested that it's like, so there's the nerd who everyone picked on, but he became famous. And there's the, um, what the mean popular girl who is kind of sadder than ever, you know, like there are all these elements that are smaller pieces to a bigger puzzle that all kind of centers around Kathleen Turner, who I think I don't I mean I don't know what you think, but I think her performance in this film is amazing. It's really great, and the first time watching it, where I realized it was great, because to be honest, the whole intro with the reunion, uh-huh. I was not on board until she actually traveled Went. back in time, right. and then from then on, I I started to under like really get into the movie. But because mm-hmm. so the whole first part is like, uh, okay. Like, cause I already know she's going to go back in time and uh-huh. I know that they're going to like, I know I have to pay attention to how each of these characters are introducing acts and what they're like as an adult, because it's going to like inform the rest of the film mm-hmm. from when they're teenagers. Anyway. So my point being is I, I, I watched the first like part of the movie and I'm like, okay, whatever. But the, but the, the time where I realized that she was actually doing a great job, mm-hmm. I was like, it's what I was, when I was really impressed is when she gets to her house for the first time. Yeah. And she sees her little sister and there's that scene where she pulls her into her bedroom and she's like, we need to be close. I need to be close to you. Yeah. Like we need to really spend time together. And I was, and, and then that made me realize like, wow, she took this moment where because the, the, the premise is ludicrous. It's like, mm-hmm. how would you gauge how would you gauge every seemingly innocuous, minuscule decision that you've ever made if you had the foresight of what would happen in the future? Right. And she takes right. this. She actually 
like really gets to a place where you feel that feeling with her where you're like oh my god like what am i doing right now what am i doing with my life and how are these choices going to affect me in the future there there are moments like that that are kind of quiet like you know there's humor that's very like um big and then there's a lot of humor and pathos that is is very nuanced like one of my favorite moments is when she goes back to school for the first time and they're singing my country tis of thee and she's like singing it with all this like gusto and like just like she's nostalgic for doing this even though it's something that she probably like would roll her eyes at as a kid and there's so much pathos in that like it's such a good performance and it also feels so effortless she's so good that it it feels like it's truly just she's reacting and feeling these things and it's coming from whereas like nick cage is has it feels like possessed by you know this whoever this character is like kathleen turner it seems like it's coming straight out of her well the interesting thing about the movie is the best the best parts are when it's kathleen turner or her friends or her family because those are the times where it feels the realist yeah the thing with nicholas cage and jim carrey Uh (laughs) uh-huh yes right (laughs) which first of all do can I can I digress really yes. quickly and just and just and just point out Jim Carrey doing lines in the principal's office <laughs> at the beginning where he's lines like, of not I don't think it's even coke no because right? because he's a dentist, he's a dentist. So, yeah so it's probably like it's probably like I don't know it's some kind of like downer or yeah something. That's but it's just funny too. like they're they're like during the reunion they're like huddled in the principal's office like oh. snorting lines off the desk um, <laughs> but anyway so the scenes in high school with Jim Carrey and yeah. Um, and Nicolas Cage and like the boys mm-hmm. all feel like cartoon, like yes. scenes from a cartoon. Yeah. That's what I was going to say originally was just that all these pieces center around Kathleen Turner in this. Yeah. Very like gently funny portrait, but then Nick Cage is his scenes. He's pulling focus and he's being just a total maniac. And so that fe- it feels like a, like someone hitting a, the wrong note on a piano but the more he does it, you kind of fall in love with that character in the way that she does again. Like you're like, who the fuck? What is going on? Especially you, the first time you see him like coming down the steps as like an old, older guy. And he's like, oh, hey, hey, hey. How's it? Oh. I wrote down, I wrote down in my notes when that happened. Um, Cage comes down looking like a haggard burned out Don Johnson. <laughs> Doesn't exactly. he? Right? <laughs> yeah, and this like ice cream colored suit. With like yeah, with like it was with his like blonde hair like slicked all the way with back. Five o'clock <laughs> shadow and just like <laughs> but because <laughs> this was like this was the time of Miami Vice when they made this movie. So mm-hmm. I I wonder if they did that on purpose, if they tried to make him look like he was trying to be in Miami Vice. I think absolutely. The, the small town appliance salesman who's like by the I can't picture this movie any other way even though in some ways i think it would be better maybe like or more successful i don't think so trying to do i don't think so and i'll tell you why because it goes back to what you were saying when it sounds like someone's continuously hitting the wrong note on a piano yeah right but you need like if there wasn't the wrong note then the rest of like how how pretty and like in focus Mm -hmm. i mean i don't mean literally like the camera but like how how pretty and in focus and streamlined everything else is Mm -hmm. really comes into focus right and i and i and and i think that if you got an actor exactly and i think that if you got an actor who slotted in and played that played what was written really well yeah 
that it would not then then the then the movie as a whole would feel too slick. I yeah yeah, and yet I so I I had that same thought, but I also I wonder if it would now be regarded as like a kind of modern classic, like it that or at least to the extent that I. I think it should be like, you know, thought of like Groundhog's Day or uh, something like that. If it was straighter and there was more kind of attention pulled to the, uh, the kind of high concept premise, it, not only does Nick Cage's performance pull attention away from Kathleen Turner, um, in, he pulls attention away from this really well-constructed time travel story. Like I was thinking... It you never. It's not like she goes back in time, and then she's seeing choices. Things happen that she remembers like moment to moment, and she's like, "Oh, I'm gonna stop that." It's like she goes back in time, and then already like everything is different. In uh, you know, different things are happening. Like her dad brings home that new car, and she's not. She doesn't run outside and like the I Edsel remember when joke? the Edsel. <laughs> The pink I like, Edsel. I like how they slip that in there. No. And it's funny. And it's the same thing with where she's like, don't eat the red M&Ms. Right. It's like things like that where in 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 any other movie where uh, made around the same time, like I like, I mean, it's an obvious uh, yeah, analogy, but back to the future. It's mm-hmm. like there are things that happen in back to the future. It's like there are specific jokes where they're only funny because you know the knowledge of the future. Right. right. But the thing with this movie is they have a couple of those slipped in, but they don't over they don't yeah, they don't lean on it too they don't heavy. lean on and they don't even over explain it they don't explain no. it at all but that's what i was getting at is it's not like she's like i remember when you brought home the edsel it was like it's oh you know dad brought home an edsel that's very in character with how i remember him but like so she's not reliving it she's given a a whole new timeline and that's why i think that this isn't a time travel movie you think it's a dream movie uh, no, I don't even uh, think it's a dream movie. I think I, I don't know how to classify it. Any time travel movie where there isn't a machine mm, or there isn't any mm. way for a time traveler to make a choice about where they're going, yeah. then it becomes a different kind of movie. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And she doesn't know how she's going to get back or if she's going to get back or if she's dead or or what. Is this so- just like a reverse Jacob's Ladder situation? This is <laughs> this is the, this is a really morbid thought I had like somewhere in the middle of the movie. I was like, what if she, what if this is like a this is this is the end of her life? Yeah, and Where, she's, yeah. she's having like some sort of flashback. You know, all the her life is flashing before her eyes, but she can actually kind of interact with it, and, which is which you you would right if, if it was like. Uh, uh, what are those called? The dreams where you can like, uh, actually do things. Lucid dreaming. Lucid dreams. Yeah. yeah. Like all your memories just became this big blurry lucid dream. I really like the way he handled her waking up in the past. Yeah. Because it's almost, cause it feels like a dream, mm-hmm. but it's not an overt dream. Yeah, you know, it's not like, Oh, there's like, Oh, it's like, there's weird things happening or there's like creepy music playing or yeah. like anything. I don't know how this tone came across because it's really subtle and really yeah. smart of of him to do it this way is that the the feeling of the dream comes from everything being completely normal. Yeah. And that makes it like so much creepier. The, there's just I guess a couple technically scenes before she goes back in time though it, it takes about like 10 or 15 minutes but 
it doesn't feel normal. It feels m- more kind of, uh, at least manic. Like there, there's this need for her to like get to the thing and then like, Oh God. And just the, the pressure of seeing all these people again and will Nick Cage show up. Uh, and, and so you're right. Like the pace of it and the tone of it shit like downshifts when she goes back in time, which is really interesting. And there's no kind of, she's not freaking out going like, how did I get here? What do I have to do? She's just like, okay. Right. Like, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of time travel movies, when, when the protagonist gets to whatever time they're going in, there's, there's an extended sequence where it's like, whoa, everything is yeah. different. Yeah. Or like, whoa, everything <laughs> is just as I remember it. Right. You know? But there is no sense of her, you see her, like, you see her realize this immediately mm-hmm. like i'm surprised almost that she just takes to it so quickly because i feel like she almost doesn't she she thinks that it's a dream and that there is no chance for her to like yeah. you know f- like fuck anything up it, I, I think i think that and part of the thesis of this movie is like that um you're nostalgic for the you know the way you remember things and, you know, and you think about the, the things that you would have done differently, but actually like when you're living it, the, um, you know, nostalgia just fades into the everyday and right. you're still the same person who makes the same basic decisions. Yeah. And, and it's almost like you would choose, I feel like it's very real in the sense that if you found yourself in that position, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like back to the future where you would like take a, like like you would take a, a betting book to your past self and be like, right. here, get rich yeah. and try to like change everything about the world. I think that you, I mean, unless you're a, I guess Biff is kind of a psychopath. So that's why he does that. <laughs> but all things being equal, if you're a totally normal person and this happens to you, I feel like you would, it would be enough to just take pleasure in doing the things that you had done before. Well, and there is a strain of that. Like she, she wants, when she goes to the smart kid, and is like, hey, I'm a time traveler. I was caught off guard because I was like, because first, that is the first kind of urgency there seems to be about it where she's trying to fix it. But it also breaks all the rules because she literally tells almost everyone she meets, yeah. like, I'm a time traveler and or like, here are some things that are going to happen to you. Make right. sure they don't. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's she just has, which goes back to me saying it's like she takes it so normally and treats it as a dream as opposed to. Right. She's like, hey, you should invent pantyhose. Right. <laughs> not, I mean, <laughs> not like let's shore up our financial future by doing this. Like she, she's more interested and the movie's more interested in her emotional journey and just, you know, feel it like she just doesn't, that's not even why she's there. She, she's like j- just trying to feel things again and live things again. And, uh, kind of come to grips with the choices that she had previously made. Cause there's, there's the, there's this time traveler catch 22. There's a couple problems is you seem completely insane. (laughs) If you try to talk about what's actually happening to you, people would never believe you anyway. They wouldn't believe you and they wouldn't believe that you have knowledge of future events. So, you know, like if you were like, I mean, like people would just think that you were completely insane. And even if you try to warn them about things, they wouldn't prepare for them anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also, uh, I feel like it's would be really difficult even just 25 years in America 
it would still be hard to understand how to fit in socially in a way where you don't feel like there's certain ways about communicating effectively Mm -hmm. and like you know there's there's just certain social things that would be really difficult i think for you to just slide right back into without seeming like a little bit off it would be kind of a nightmare too you know all the bad stuff that was on the horizon anyway that yeah but she's unconcerned with all of that she's just she just wants to experience her life as she has already experienced it and yet change you you know change but dump charlie but dump but she does it and and that but she doesn't doesn't. they still end up together at the end of the movie and this is why i think ultimately this movie really kicks ass when it comes to like tackling this idea of time travel and like what do you regret in your life Mm -hmm. because she doesn't regret ending up with him right right but she realizes that it doesn't have to be one or the other Mm -hmm. because she goes she goes and she goes on the date yeah and do they they sleep together right it's kind of ambiguous how far they actually go but for these purposes i guess they sleep together um with that like weird beatnik like fitzsimmons or what's his name right i think richard yeah yeah richard fitzsimmons so she like explores she's exploring her sexuality having as a teenager but having like years of experience of like i know what i like i i have regrets about these things Mm -hmm. and this is what i want to do now that i'm here Mm -hmm. so it's not like i'm going to either end up with charlie or not end up with charlie it's like well i could still end up with charlie but like I understand now the things that you don't understand as a teenager is that like, it's not so black and white. Yeah. So the, there's this kind of arc that the Richard Fitzsimmons or whatever, what hit the beatnik character has where, you know, she's like, I've always had a crush on him. And then she sees him in English class and he's like, you know, he feeling things and talking about, uh, the old man in the sea or whatever. And like, with, with such passion and she's like yeah that she's getting all excited and like but and then she goes on this date with him and he's a turd like he's just like he's just ludicrous and appealing to her like she's still you can see that she's like are come to grips with that is laughing at him when he's like reciting poetry and stuff and she's like She's like, look, whatever, like still, I, re- I really enjoy making out with you. You're going to be fine. You know, it's great. Let's have sex. Cause I know the sex is kind of not that big of a deal. And so we're going to do it and then I'll see you later. And his character makes that arc. And if Nick Cage's character from the beginning was, it's like, oh, he cheated on her. And yet he's a total stud who is, you know, like just a, a, kind of a dumb, dumb teenage boy jerk rather than a fucking weirdo the that choice wouldn't be as interesting definitely and that's why i think even though his performance doesn't fit in with the rest of the tone again like i was saying it informs yeah. certain other things about the movie that make them more pull them into focus she more. chooses him yeah exactly despite, and you understand and because of all that and you understand why she chooses him yeah and you understand. And that, I think, is ultimately why his performance is so successful, even though tonally it's different from the rest of the movie, mm-hmm. is that you, his character choices make you realize why she not only chose him the first time, mm-hmm. but chooses him again. Despite all of the obvious flaws, because that's what love is, and is accepting those, those flaws and that people change. And I was surprised watching it this time, at how kind of the DNA of this movie is very 
kind of conservative in a baby boomer kind of way as like the liberal beatnik kid is actually just a kind of sleazy know-it-all who wants to get in your pants and that, um, you know, Oh, Nick Cage wants to be an artist, but settles for being like a steady small business owner. And, um, that's not that cool, but you know, you realize that that's really what, um, a good partner is. And, and yet it does, it's not like a stuffy movie at all. And no, it's not at and all. in a lot of like ways, like it, it, in regards to like her having sex, her having sex with teenagers, by the way, um, <laughs> like she wants, she bones the beatnik and she wants to like get in Nick Cage's pants too. And you know, it's pretty that, liberal. That car scene where they're parked yeah. and she's reaching into Nick yeah. Cage's pants made me cringe. Yeah. It's for that exact reason, because I'm realizing she is approaching this as an adult, as an adult, having had 20 plus years of sexual, right. like understanding with this man. Yeah. And he's and, such a stud right. as a teenager, but, it, but not experienced at all and is wigged out by it. I mean, it's like, she's calling his dick pet names that no. they had from their marriage that right. like doesn't, that, that it doesn't exist yet. Yeah. And, and so that, you that's mean seems, my Huang. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What he says. <laughs> Huang. <laughs> So weird. I know. His it performance both informs it and distracts from it. You know what I mean? Like No, but you're right, but it's good that it distracts from right. it. Because if if that scene was played straight or or if he had matched the intensity of of Kathleen Turner. Right. That scene, I mean it already made me cringe, but it would be too much to handle. Yeah. If if that were right. the case. I think you're right because he plays it very broad and so it becomes funny and not poignant, you know, and like their chemistry together too is like for knowing now that Kathleen Turner was fucking hated him and was probably gritting her teeth through all of those scenes with him where she's going like, why is he doing why, why this is he why doing that? is he sinking this movie like my comeback attempt like she must have really felt that and yet th- she is so good in it and it, she interacts with him on such a real level exactly you don't like, ever feel like she's like patronizing him no or like you know acting down to him because she doesn't like agree with his choice no she her character you see her character fall for him you know like even if she as an actress was thinking it was ridiculous, like she, you see her treat him in so many complex ways throughout the movie and scene to scene, like that really communicates this like shared history that she fell in love with this guy and felt very much out of love with him. And yet that he's all of his weirdnesses and things are like completely familiar to her. Which is a really a big feat, <laughs> you know? Like that that is that's some good acting. I know. It's really good. She's really good. You know who is not good is Sofia Coppola. That that is a really that performance made me cringe more than anything else because she is just at the mo- as she's the her daughter or no, not her daughter, I'm sorry, her uh, younger sister. And she's just at the most awkward phase of her like of growing up. She must be what, like 13. Yeah. Has like braces and is just like really like kind of gawky and, and lanky and just does not look like she wants to be there. 
I feel like he forced his daughter to be in his movies. I feel like yeah. she never, like no performance no. that I've seen her in. I haven't like, seen the Godfather three, but it's I, bad. Yeah. It's I mean, the whole movie's bad, but, but she's, she's bad. Really bad. Yeah. Yeah. And he had, he had her gunned down by Nicolas Cage in the cotton club. Lest we forget, but no, that, how could you, <laughs> that was pretty, uh, pretty rough to watch. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Was this his like film debut? Uh, it, I think this was his bit first substantial role. It came much earlier than I yeah. anticipated. And he and Nick Cage became very close friends. Of course they did. Yeah. I feel like they're similar actors. Yeah. And they were kind of on the same wavelength right. uh, there for this film, except that his character was written as a goofball. Yeah. <laughs> so he, yeah, there's uh, stories of them like on off of set, like uh, getting into shenanigans. I think they, there's like an urban legend that they were like staying in a hotel and they kidnapped one of the like people working in the hotel for, for fun. Um, but uh, that's like some psycho thing. Jim Carrey and Nicolas Cage would do. Man, the energy when they, when they, when they were in the room together must've just been like crazy. And Jim Carrey saying that Nick Cage was like totally bizarre at that age where he's just has emotions just coming out of him all the time and right. just and is just fu- consciously fucking with people all the yeah. time like staring at them weird just to see how they'll react and the thing is i think like i think meeting nicholas like personally knowing nicholas cage you probably never want to hang out with him <laughs> because because i'm sure he's the kind of guy that like can't ever turn, turn it, off, it off yeah you know maybe the thing that i like about about his hamminess is that it always feels at least in these films, it always feels exploratory. He's not just like doing it because he's in love with being a ham. It feels like he is being like, what happens if I do this? It's like truly experimental. It's the chaos factor. Yeah, exactly. It's the chaos factor that is missing in a movie like this. Right. I'm mean, because like you were saying, everything else is perfectly measured and mm-hmm. like very like laid out, like very professionally and and specifically, yeah. except for his performance. Yeah, which um can it, like you know immediately that anything can happen from him. Like, and in almost every scene, he does he makes at least one choice that is out of control. My favorite thing, N- Nicolas Cage in so many of his movies has these moments to himself where the scene ends, but the camera stays on him (laughs) for like a couple seconds longer. There's like, there's one in almost every movie we've seen so far. And my favorite so far was this one, the scene where he puts that, where, where he eats the Mentos. Agreed. Yeah. And he makes this weird little like lizard tongue thing. Like, He's like, she, she like breaks up with him and then walks away and the camera stays on him for a second. And then he just kind of like looks wistfully and then he pulls these like mints out of his pocket <laughs> and he pops one in his mouth and then, yeah, it does like a little, little thing. <laughs> yeah. It, he has so many or like, we, you know, in the scene we're talking about in the car scene where she's like reaching into his pants, his mouth is like wide open that whole time. And he's like sucking back into his face. Like, ah, <laughs> like it's so exaggerated and insane. That said, he's choosing to push it over the top and to do whatever he feels in the moment, but it's not it's not without any control because the scenes of him old as an older man are like I think a lot more subtle and he seems like that same character who's been kind of beaten down and 
is, is understated and knows that he's a joke, you know, knows that people view him as a joke, but he's, is just very much like, this is who I am. Like, I'm sorry, I'm a fuck up, but it's funny to hear him do the pokey voice as like a 40 year old man. Yeah. Like at the end of the movie. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think the moment when in talking about like watching it and you're, and I was like questioning it and being like, is this performance just, does it not work? Like, and I came on board again, even though I've seen this movie a couple times is when they sing that, that, uh, but it's, it's a Buddy Holly song, right? The, um, no, I love you like I do. Uh, no, it's, uh, is it Dion? I think it's Dion. It's some... Yeah, it is Dion. Yeah, yeah, it it's is. Dion anyway, I know what scene you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, he's he's really charming. Like, the all that, that those boys as a group, like, performing this song like that, it's just, it's such a charming scene. And all the girls are, like, screaming and throwing themselves around in... Those, like, gold lame tuxes that yeah. they're wearing. <laughs> in a time before MTV when, like, that kind of music is just seeping into the culture, really, and, like... They look like a boy band. Yeah, they do. Like, and that's really, like, it's, it's, it's like Duran Duran as a doo-wop group. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, like, look- it's really interesting. Yeah. And that musical sequence, I think, feels the least real of any of mm-hmm. the movie. For yeah, that, You know? It's so but, perfect. But, and, 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 and that's, and it's fine. It's good for that instance, because you, you have to, you have to go over the top. You have to meet Nick Cage and Jim Carrey. Sure on their level sure. when, when the musical sequence like is about them. Well, and you get to why, so his character wanted to be a singer and you know, because that scene is so perfect, you're like, Oh shit. Like, yeah, he was good though. Like he, he has the passion and the talent and he's awkward in real life, but on stage he's like pulling it and like, which makes then there's that scene in the like club the or the bar with you know mostly black people in R&B band playing and then he gets up and sings and the like agent or promoter like, or whatever you need better material yeah exactly like just shoots him down and he's totally broken then you get it like you're like so i have a theory uh-huh that coppola views himself as a mixture of the three like main male characters, the Nicolas Cage character, the beatnik character and the nerd. Interesting. That okay. he, that, that those are three distinct parts of his underdog. Like he sees himself as an underdog combination of those three guys. Sure. Okay. Okay. People, people didn't. Okay. I, I see like the nerd part, right? right? He's the nerd made good. And then what the artist. Okay. The art, like uh, the, 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 the tortured artist. Right. Right. Who thinks that like no one understands him. True. Okay. Okay. And he has like contempt for like quote unquote normal people. Right. And then Nicholas. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And then Nicholas Cage's character in the sense that he has all these grand ideas and he knows that he has Mm. it in him to be successful and be a star, but no one else takes, no one else believes him or takes him seriously. Yeah. And then he fails. He, or he gives in. Okay, here's the other thing. How do you feel about this movie essentially being a movie about, uh, it's it's essentially, like, it's the movie is a statement on compromising yeah. your dreams. Yes. Directed by a man who uh, ostensibly achieved all of his dreams at this point. Is he struggling with that? Like, I guess I need to compromise now, you know? Now that I'm making movies to get myself out of the financial hole. Because the Cotton Club was, the, was a movie that he did exactly the way he wanted, and it, 
it devastated him. Yes. And so now this movie, while I'm sure he also did it very much the way he mm-hmm. wanted to, it clearly was not his like pet project. Yeah, his vision. He, he was a director for hire. But there's something noble in that. Yeah, well, he does it so well in like, if you watch Apocalypse Now, Coppola is the star of that movie. He, it's such an auteur piece. And this is not an auteur piece. Like, yet he is doing something in service to the script and making the script, like fulfilling all the promise in the script and doing it really artfully. Like, the, it's a beautiful movie. The, the way the camera moves, the way he's... Like, it's done really well, but... And the, and the, the way that it treats teenagers feels to me the way that he... That, like, like, like Rumblefish. Yes. Where yeah. he treats them as, like... Yes, they are, like, very much purposefully two-dimensional stereotypes of teenagers, but he, but he treats them as, like, fully formed human yes. beings. Yes, yeah, he treats them with respect. Right. He never calls attention to himself, like, directing the movie. Like, the way the scenes at the reunion are shot and lit and everything are really beautiful and artful, and, like, it feels... You're like, oh, shit, he is, was making pretty bold choices, but they're so he's so good that they don't f- call attention to themselves because the movie doesn't really call for it yeah but he makes all those choices and they actually bolster the movie yeah instead of making it feel like it's like oh this is just coppola trying to like yeah, prove that he can like wanking. do something artfully with like a more or less straightforward script right because it actually helps the movie yeah what um, did, what did he do after this movie? Uh, that's a good question. Oh, <laughs> I, I, there might've been one in between, but I think in like 90 or 91, he did Dracula. Oh man. That's a really interesting movie too. Yeah. God, what a fascinating career. Keanu Reeves in that movie is, that's, <laughs> forgot, that's right. I forgot Keanu was in that movie. It's one of the worst like lead performances in a movie. Have you seen I've Keanu in uh he did uh what one of the one of the like late nineties like Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare yes. movies? Yes. What, what, do you remember which um, one it was? I think it might be much ado about nothing. It's it is truly oh, one of, of the shrew, I think. I don't remember which one it He's is. He's the bad guy though. Yeah, but it. it's truly one of the worst performances by an actor in anything I've ever seen. Yeah, it's like amazing. ever. Dude, do you do you ever think that like what what would have happened to Keanu if the Matrix hadn't come along? Wild stallions. Yeah, because that's really like before the Matrix. That was kind of the the peak. Speed, I guess. Speed. But he didn't follow speed. He followed up with the Shakespeare movie, so he didn't really like follow up with speed in any significant way. I used to think people were being too harsh on him as an actor. He's a, I, he's not a good actor. He's not at all. He's really not. Sorry, Keanu, if you are listening to this, yeah. uh, I appreciate he's, some of your films. He's but a good movie star. Nah, I don't even think he is a good movie really? star. He's such a bland personality yeah, off I camera. So. I guess so. Like, have you ever seen a, like, have you ever seen a Keanu interview where you're like, yeah, like he, like <laughs> I, 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 now I understand him. No. Yeah. Right. right? He feels very dull. So, okay. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you this question. Okay. Do you believe that this movie is ultimately a fatalistic movie? Mm. Because while the tone of it is very uplifting and kind of gives you the sense of, isn't life beautiful? Right. In the end, everything is exactly the same yeah. as it was before. Right. She really just comes to uh, accept these currents. I mean, essentially, right. Essentially the moral is that the right choice 
was her staying with a man who like made her unhappy. Right. Right. I think that's what I meant in saying it's a conservative movie because the message of it does seem to me that you, you know, you're questioning the status quo. You're questioning the way things are and saying like, if only X, Y, and Z had happened differently, or if I like made this choice, then everything would be better. And yet with perspective, you realize that everything is as it should be and nothing should change. Basically it's your fault for not being happy with it. In some senses that seems very Zen and very like, you know, let things be. But I think there, there is that sense of like the only thing holding her back from happiness was herself and that and and questioning things questioning things too much so yeah like is that fatalism I, it but everyone feels that way yeah you don't like you don't have to go back in time to realize like wow there are certain choices i made that i really wish i had done differently right and you put i think you put, i think this movie is trying to teach you don't get caught up in regretting decisions you've already made yeah. Who wrote this? Was this script written by a woman? Do you know? I, I don't know. Ten bucks would say yes. Let's look it up. Because I think ultimately at its heart, it is a feminist film. I think so. Even though she makes the same choice. Uh-huh. You know, like outwardly she sticks with the guy she married and doesn't try to like go off and do her own thing, which seemingly I think on the surface you could take as like not being feminist. But I think the way that her character is written, it's too nuanced and specific for a man to have written it it's written by a man and a woman okay okay that makes sense Um, no i but i agree that it's it's a very nuanced understanding of like you know she she makes the choice to stick with uh with nick cage but it's a informed empowered choice she has the power to not do it but she realizes oh well this is one thing though is um, in this book, it said that there was an original, originally a less happy ending, but that it, they changed it uh, near the end and that Nick Cage liked the other ending more. But I haven't, I, I didn't read anything about what that ending had been. Yeah, I wonder if it was like really pessimistic. Right. Or maybe she hadn't, maybe she didn't get, get back together with Charlie. And, and if it was more pessimistic, would this movie be more powerful or... I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Oh, well. I wish... Uh, I'm. Peggy I'm, Sue got married Redux. <laughs> Peggy Sue got divorced. <laughs> I, <laughs> is there... Is there... There, there's, there's no sequel to this movie, is nah, there? No, okay. No. I guess I just want, want to end it by saying, like, I like Rumblefish. I wish more people watched this movie. I, yes. I yeah. w- recommend it to everyone. And knowing that a lot of people won't like Nick Cage's performance, too. Like but i i think it doesn't it doesn't matter if you do or not because everything else about this movie and the movie as a whole is strong anyway and and just Kathleen Turner is so good in it Which okay is, all right is that it that's it great you've been listening to heat seeking panther yes bye, bye.
Peggy Sue got divorced.